Welcome to Christian Life Academy. We're working our way through the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689, and we are working our way through Chapter 2, which is Of God and the Holy Trinity. Um, we have been taking quite a bit of time in Paragraph 1. Paragraph 1 uh, in almost every chapter, I think 30 chapters out of the total, um, the primary source of the doctrine is, chapter, is Paragraph 1. And uh, that is certainly true here. Subsequent paragraphs kind of um, address additional questions or issues. And so in, in this chapter, in chapter 2, uh, paragraph 1 basically is a long list of the attributes of God. And um, easy enough to read those and say, okay, we're done, and um, you know, let's go chapter 3, but or go to paragraph 2. <laughs> but uh, that doesn't make a lot of sense because, uh, frankly, we just don't have a good understanding about all these things. And they're all... Um, every attribute is uh, so broad in terms that uh, they deserve to be uh, explored a little bit further and uh, developed a little bit greater. So that's what we're doing. And um, we've been working through, um, at this point, uh, some of the, the, basically the end of paragraph one that really is focused on how God is just. And uh, there is uh, basically... Uh, we've talked about the fact that justice true, true of God and, and true justice only comes from God. He is justice. There is no other way to define this. And um, uh, why? Well, because he also determines what is good and evil, does he not? I mean, who? so anyone else that has a difference for how, who, if God is uh, right in how he, what he says is good and what he says is evil, well, they are incorrect, and they are that, therefore are unable to deliver pure and true justice. Now, do we have judges? Do we judge people? Does the church judge people? Yes, all to all of the above. You make judgments yourself all the time. Some of you said this morning, Brian does not have a nice tie. Why is that the case? You judge me on that. Well, let it go. It's not that big of a deal. Um, it doesn't really matter, frankly. But honestly, you, you, know, you do make judgments, right? I mean, all the time. And rightfully so. The Scripture talks about in a whole bunch of things of how we are to judge things how we are to determine things, we're to consider things, we're to make sure that we're doing the proper things. Frankly, the number one place we should be judging should be what? Ourselves. That's the number one. <laughs> Everybody was all over the place on that one. Sorry. But we should be judging ourselves, right? I mean, you should be judging. What are you doing? Are you doing the right thing? Are you doing the wrong thing? How are you looking at this? What's your perspective? What's your attitude? What's your motivations? All those things and that self, that introspective where you're looking at yourself is part of becoming more sanctified. We are to examine ourselves. What does that mean when the scriptures say we're to examine ourselves? It means to judge ourselves, to look at ourselves, determine what's going on. Now, judging and judgment is a much broader term than that. In other words, you can see a lot of places in Scripture where it talks about judgment, or you can see other words, like I just said, examining, right, that refer to a judgment, but it's not complete judgment. Now, what do we mean? Well, okay, so if you say, all right, we're having a... All right, so, you know, we go to the easy ones first before we develop the hard ones. If you haven't figured that out yet, that's how I tell the do examples. I start with easy ones, and then I turn that into broadening it, right? Okay, so we're having a pie contest, <laughs> and you are a judge of the pie contest, Right? You determine which pie tastes the best in the, as a judge in the pie. We've had those before, right? We've had them. So that, that's what you're judging. Is that judgment broad and expansive of everything? Well, no, certainly not. I mean, you're not judging whether or not the person, uh, did they wash their hands before they made the pie? You don't know that. 
right? You're not judging what was their motivation. Was it because they were joyful and glad to do this? Or did they do it because they felt like they had to do it because they were pressured because everybody else was making a pie, right? You're not judging that. You're just judging how the pie tastes, right? And hopefully if the person that wins was the one who really didn't want to do it, that maybe that'll encourage them for the next time. But anyway, <laughs> that's beside the point. The point is, is that you're not judging those things, right? So when we talk about judging and judgment, we're not talking about all-inclusive judgment. Are you with me on this? At the same time, God is all-inclusive in his judgment. Does this make sense? In other words, when God looks to judge us, he knows every aspect of us, right? He knows what our motivations are. He knows what our thoughts are. He knows where we're going and why we're doing it. He is able to deliver true justice. The reality is, is no man is able to do that. Only God. Man cannot know. We like to get very close. We try to get, and we should try to get. Like, if we're trying to be more like God, shouldn't our judgment be as righteous as it could be, as correct, if you want to use that, as it could be? Yes, it should be, right? So, if we're going to judge, you know, some person, you know, how, this, okay, so let me go to another example, a little bit more than the pie, but it's a good one. So if we're going to say, look, I think that whoever is running the road repairs on I-69 should be fired. I may have said that before, but let's say that that was the case, that we said that, right? We are making a judgment on that person about their job performance. Are you with me on this? Now, we don't know all of the aspects of how they had to perform their job, do we? We don't know that. We don't know why is it taking this longer to do this part and not this part. Well, we don't know that. We're making guesses, right? But even sometimes even the workers on the project don't know all those things, right? They don't understand why all these things are happening the way they're happening. Or was there enough, was there enough resources for them to actually be able to do this part the way that we thought they should do it or as fast as they... You see what I'm saying, right? It's different. See, well, this road was, took it's this many miles, and it took two years, and this road, more miles, took less years. Okay? Have you ever seen that happen? Yeah, it's definitely happening <laughs> right now. We're on year two of this section of 69. There's sections near Lansing, much longer, finished in a year. Except they were flat, and they didn't have very many overpasses. They didn't have any bridges over water. Do you see how it can take a different time based on that? And the company that gets hired, different, right? It's not like there's abundance of people, companies available to do all this work. So we make a judgment. So that all didn't really matter. I'm giving you parts of an example here. That we make a judgment based on incomplete knowledge. Do you see this? Where God, who is omniscient, who knows all things, is able to, the only one who's able to make a proper judgment. Do you see? We make a judgment, we don't have all the knowledge. God makes a judgment, he has all the knowledge. Therefore, God's judgments can be perfectly correct. Perfectly correct. Does this, do you understand what I'm going here? All right. So, when we consider God's judgment, and we consider God's being just, we have to understand that there isn't a question of whether or not God's justice is correct. It is correct. It is the only thing that's correct. No matter what we see, no matter what we think, our perception, our understanding of what's going on to any situation is not complete. We try, we should at least, try to judge as good. Look, 
Have you ever had a situation, I know there's some younger kids here right now, but I think that you, you know, they, they've probably already figured this out. Have you ever had a situation where one child does something and the, another child does something and the judgment that you give is different for each child? Now, I remember reading some years ago about an example of this, and this is a great example. You think about a, a Christian school administrator, and they see two people, two children that are in the school, and they both have not, are not meeting the dress code. Now, if you're not familiar with this, it's pretty uh, regular for a, Christian, for a Christian school, for instance, to say that skirts have to be a certain length for the, for the ladies, right, for the girls. Right? You understand what I'm saying? That... Uh, they can't have a uh, uh, sometimes hair too long. That's a thing for the boys. That's that's a thing sometimes, right? Are you with me on this? Now, what do you think happens to girls as they grow? The skirts get longer, or do the skirts get shorter? The skirts get shorter. Now, why I'm saying that is because their legs get longer. So the same skirt that a girl wears a month ago and then she wears it the next month may be shorter. Are you with me on this? Now you say, well, yeah, but like, why are they so close to the line? That's, you're going on a side trail. It's a rabbit hole, rabbit trail there. Don't, don't go to that. My point is, is that you could see two people that both have violated that dress code, right? One could have done it with intent and one could have done it accidentally. You see the difference? In other words, one girl could not have realized that her skirt did not meet the requirement. Like it's supposed to be, let's say it's supposed to be below the knee. I've heard, you know, we went to school, that's what it was. It was the, the skirts had to be below the knee. So one girl, could, her skirt could actually be in the middle of her knee, but she didn't realize it because she went through a growth spurt. And then another girl has her skirt above the knee. And you know that that girl, she's always pushing the dress code, right? So there's a difference. So in your justice, as an administrator of that school, should you treat them both exactly the same? You violated the law. You're going to get this. No, you wouldn't, right? You would recognize that there's a difference there in intent. And this is certainly true with your own children. Sometimes they can do something, like let's say that uh, both children break a mug in the kitchen. One breaks the mug because she's trying to dry it after washing it. It slips out of her hand and hits the other floor. The other one is tossing it up in the air and playing catch with the mug, and she drops it and it breaks. Do you see a difference in what maybe how they should be treated in regards to that? Yes, at least as far as the reprimand goes, right? You can see that there would be a difference. So we try to judge what justice would be based on our perception of what reality is. The truth of the matter is, is that we're never going to do it perfectly. I'm sorry to say this, but you're not going to be a perfect parent no matter who you are. And anyone who's been a parent more than a month, more than a week, <laughs> I think we go to a week, knows that's the case. You're never going to be a perfect parent. You're still trying to figure it out. I don't know anybody who has got to the point where they can say, you know, I got this thing down pat. And I know exactly how to deal with all these situations that arise out of kids so that I can, you know, they'll be perfect when they grow up. The reality is, is that you, most of the time you don't know. You're trying to figure it out. You don't know exactly how you should handle the situation and you're trying to be the best parent that you can, but your justice, your judgment, is frequently not correct. I don't know how frequently, but let's just say more often than it's not. Does that, make, does that sound about right? And then you figure out later, yeah, we probably shouldn't have responded that way. <laughs> that was a little bit too much, or that wasn't soft enough. I mean, they're doing it again five seconds later. 
you know, that, that wasn't the right justice. So we are imperfect in trying to figure it out. God is always perfect. His justice is always correct. Now, this obviously, justice in it as a subject, expands way beyond that because now you're also dealing with God's will. You're also dealing with, uh, you know, what happens in the world as a result of his will and of his plan. And there are many things that happen that, frankly, we say that's not just. We, why did a, why did a six-month, six-month-old daughter of the Bolin, Bollingers, Bollingers, die? Doesn't seem right. To us. But that was part of God's plan. Frankly, as a believer, what should your response be? We don't, we don't, we're not happy, but... God's will be done. There's nothing else you can say. Did God have the power to stop that baby from dying? Absolutely. Absolutely. He didn't. He didn't. So whatever it was that caused that was his will. Now the unbeliever, the unbelievers are the ones that blame God. What kind of God is this? Killed the baby. Why? Because they don't understand. They think God should do what they think that God should do. You, you with me on this? You can see that it's, it obviously does not make any sense if you know that God is the one who actually is God and not you. Welcome, Bev. So when we consider God's justice, we have to start with that basic understanding that God is just and his justice is righteous. His justice is right. It does not matter if we disagree because it's still just. It's still right. The reality is, is that we shouldn't disagree. We shouldn't be calling ourselves, a calling God into question because we don't agree with the way that something went. And we struggle with this. Does anybody else struggle with this? You, you Be honest. Yes. It's hard to understand sometimes why things happen the way that they do. Now, there's a difference, though, between being sad that something happened or being belligerent, right? Blaming God, or why did you do this, right? That's, is there anybody else that ever did that? We see examples in the Bible? <laughs> yeah, yeah, a lot of them, right? There's a lot of examples of this. And yet, we also see many examples of uh, believers through history who actually respond in the proper way. Think of David. Numerous occasions that David saw things happening that were just... Uh, very trying. And uh, his response was to basically trust God. It was to trust God. And that's where we should be as well. But when we consider the justice of God, and we did start to break this down last week, basically we can look at this justice um, in two ways, positively and negatively. We covered this last week. Positively, oh, let me go back to that. So in, in a nutshell, Positively described is rewarding those who seek him, and negatively described is punishing the guilty. So if you think about justice, justice does not just apply to the guilty. Justice applies to the righteous, right? If you're going to receive justice, justice would be for the righteous, and it would be for the unrighteous. So positively described, and we, and we uh, actually covered this all last week, only a couple of points here, but a lot of verses, God not only forgives those who ask forgiveness, but he rewards those that seek him. 
He rewards those that seek him. We read some specific verses about that. Hebrews 11.6 But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And then also we said his forbearance or mercy on believers as a result of Christ's sacrifice reflect his mercy for those that seek him. Look, the reality is, is that all men sin. You are sinners, saved by grace. You are sinners, but you are saved by grace. You will not pay the ultimate penalty for your sin because Christ has paid the penalty for your sin. When you sin, you can repent and God forgives you. Why? You're covered by the blood of the Lamb. That's why. You're covered by the blood of the Lamb. When you die, you do not have to worry as a believer if you sinned right before you died so that you're going to go to heaven or not. Other religions teach that. How horrible of a thought. How horrible to live in a way that you're constantly afraid that your thoughts could have betrayed you the moment before you surprisingly died so that you now go to hell. No eternal security. That's what we call that, right? Eternal security. Knowing that when you die, you are not going to go to hell. You are going to go to heaven. I don't know that there's anything more important than that. I mean, let's, let's, just, be, let's just be real about this. You don't know when you're going to die, do you? Does anybody, did anybody get an email, a text, a letter? Well, that's the thing where they send the paper through a mailman. I don't know if anybody knows that. But... Right, so none of you know. Now, do some people know when, okay, this is more anecdotal. Do some people know when they're going to die? You could say yes. It's okay. You could say yes. Look, somebody is ill and they're progressively getting worse, right? They know they're going to die. Somebody who's getting ill or is ill or something is that they've been in an accident or something and they can feel it coming. They know that their life is starting to slip away. They can feel this. This happens if you've never been around somebody like that. That is what happens. They know that this is coming and they know they're going to die, right? This happens. But there are many people who do not know. They have a heart attack, they're dead. They have a car accident, they're dead. A meteorite falls on them, they're dead. Lightning bolt hits them, they're dead. I mean, all these things, I'm just giving surprise examples, right? So I used this example before. It, happened, it actually has happened twice now in Lapeer County. Unbelievable to me, where a person's driving down the road, a limb falls off of the tree, straight through the car, and impales the person and kills them. Not during a storm. This has happened twice. The first time it happened, it was right up the road from me on Baldwin Road, and I drove under that tree every day. I mean, I know the tree, big oak tree, big oak tree, healthy. Limb fell off that tree, straight through the window, impaled them, dead, dead, immediately. That was a surprise. They did not know that they were going to die, right? Now, if you live in a religion, you trust your faith in a religion that says that you don't know if you're saved or not unless you have, let's say, for instance, attended confession. Or you've received last rites before you died. It's Roman Catholicism. If you live in that religion, how scared would you be? Now, they kind of threw a bone there to people like that because of their teachings on purgatory. So what are the teachings on purgatory? 
everyone goes to purgatory, only a few exceptions for saints, but everybody goes to purgatory, and eventually, could be a million years, could be 100,000 years, could be 10,000 years, you will make it to heaven. This is shocking to most people. Roman Catholicism teaching is that no one ends up in hell. Everyone ends up in heaven. Adolf Hitler will end up in heaven. He's like our go-to bad guy, right? Nero will end up in heaven. Saddam Hussein will end up in heaven. Mohammed will end up in heaven, according to Roman Catholics. Do we believe that? No. Does the Bible teach that? No. Not in the Bible at all. But that's what they teach. So now people have less fear. What it really means is, is that you will have more time in purgatory if you died while you were still in sin and you had not confessed that sin and been absolved of that sin. It's not what we believe. We believe that God, through salvation, forgives you of your sins. Once you believe on him, you repent from your sins, you will have eternal life. The fact that you sin before you die does not change that. Christ still paid for those sins. Those sins are still covered by the blood of the Lamb. You still will gain admittance to heaven immediately. You will not have to pay for those sins because he paid for them. Amen. So, we must realize that God's justice in the case of the believer is glorious. It's wonderful. We should be thankful for it. Then there's the negative side. So, we talked about the fact that, kind of covered these, a lot of these things, well, half of them here, but God remains just in and through his attributes. The Bible links justice or righteousness of God in the judgment of God. His judgment is righteous and that, that it is just, and we talked about that a minute ago. God is not accountable to anyone or thing outside of himself. But there is a law in his very nature which governs everything God does and says. So you say, well, God is just and he's God. Does that mean he can do everything he wants? He can do everything he wants in accordance with his own nature. And that is completed, I mean completely described in his law. That's who he is. He is what his law is. That's why we follow the law, the the. the Antinomians who say that God's law doesn't apply to us have a basic misunderstanding of God. They also have a basic misunderstanding of the Scripture. Now, when you see those kind of movements, and by the way, if you say, well, antinomian, what is that? You're using a fancy word there, Brian. Yes, that's true. I'm sorry about that. So antinomian means no law. Nomos is law. Antinomian is no law. They don't believe in the law applying to believers. In other words, the Ten Commandments, I'm wearing a Ten Commandments tie. Ten Commandments, uh, the law in the Scripture, uh, which obviously is detailed in the Old Testament, reasserted, by the way, by Jesus Christ himself in the New Testament, that that law does not apply to us. That's what they say. This is, this is the direction that they go with this. So what does that mean? Well, that means that they have found a reason to somehow discount the Old Testament. Now, that in itself is a problem. Because, first of all, as I said, Christ restates the law. He restates it multiple times. This is not like we're misinterpreting some passage of Scripture. Multiple times he restates the law. Romans. Romans. A book written to the Romans, the Christians in Rome, who were used to a 
lawful society, a society, the Roman government, was based on law. Didn't originate it, but they had a society and a government based on law. So very understanding for Romans to place their emphasis on the law. So what Paul does in Romans is he works on explaining to them how there is a difference between law and liberty. We have liberty through Christ, but the law is not to no effect. The law isn't gone. The law wasn't destroyed. The law isn't ended. It can't be because it is God. It defines who he is. So how are we to treat God? You go to the law. The law tells you how to treat God. You don't blaspheme him. You don't use his name in vain. You don't have any other idols before him. He's first. Does this make sense? In other words, the law defines that for us. Then how do we deal with other people? Look, these are the two big questions in life. This is it. We, we like to throw in all these other things. Well, you know, why am I here? What am I doing? Okay, well, the Bible answers that question too. Really easy. But the question about how you conduct yourself and how you should view things is, is summarized in the law. And Christ summed it up. Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. The fact of the matter is, is that if you love God with all your heart, you will love your neighbor as yourself. You see this? If you love God, you will not lie to your neighbor. God says lying is a sin. You won't steal from your neighbor. Right? You will treat your neighbor how God would intend you to do this. If you love God, you're going to follow his word. You're going to obey him, and you're going to become more sanctified and be more like Christ. Did Christ steal? No. Did he lie? No. Did he murder? No. These are the big ones, right? We're covering the big ones here. Did he covet? No. Did he commit adultery? No. Did he honor the Sabbath? Yes, he did. We're not going to go down the grain thing. That's another subject. I get too many rabbit trails to begin with. But the point of the matter is, is that God is not accountable to anything or anyone outside of himself. And frankly, simply because of him having a law that he's defined for us tells us what his nature is, and now we know what he cannot contradict. He can't go against his own law. So this would be along those same lines I think we talked about last week, which is a false argument. It's an illogical argument. Can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? Right? You, this is the, you know, can God do this? Okay, that, that makes no sense whatsoever. So the question would be, can God lie? Right? You see what I'm saying? The answer is no. Oh, then he's not God because he can't do any. He can't do everything. He can do everything except violate his own nature. He can do everything except he cannot violate his own nature. There is no way for him to make a rock that's so big that he can't lift it. First of all, he doesn't have arms. What? Doesn't have arms. He also doesn't have wings. Now, why do I say that? Well, because the Bible talks about God having arms, and the Bible talks about God having wings. These are anthropomorphism. Ampro, f, f, say the word, Paul. That's what they are. <laughs> Anthropomorphisms, which is where we use terms that we understand to describe God. Right? So, how exactly does it look for God to be sitting on the throne? Now, if you've read... Uh, 
chick tracks or you've seen movies or something, I don't know, something like this, and you see this, you know, you don't see the whole thing, but you see like the bottom of the throne, you know, and God's feet, <laughs> the bottom of the robes, they're right there, right? Uh, that's, just, that's just really not true. I mean, that, that gives us an indication so that we would understand that he is sitting on the throne, but the reality is, is that the Bible says very clearly God does not have a body, hands and feet like we have. The Bible says this. Is that a contradiction? No, it's just explaining that all these things that we see are for God to understand, for us to understand God and to get a picture of how he interacts with us. So when the Bible says that God shelters us under his wing, it's not because God is winged, it's because he's, it's drawing an example like as if a bird, a mother bird was protecting its young, puts their wing over the children to shelter them. Do you see? So, we have to remember that when we talk about God and his law and his nature, that it is not quite what we picture in our heads. It's what his word says. It's what his word says. So is God two stone tablets? He, I say he's the law. Does that mean I'm saying he's two stone tablets? Of course I'm not saying that he's two stone tablets. I'm saying that that defines who he is. So when we say you know, God is love, is God love? He is. We just talked about that a couple of weeks ago, right? Is love in the Ten Commandments? No. The law is describing a part of God's nature. It is not describing him entirely. I mean, if there's anything that you should have heard over the last several months, that we've been parked on paragraph one of this chapter, it should be that all of these words that are used to describe God in Scripture that are then encapsulated in this portion of our confession are much broader than this one word. They're much broader than this. So, is God love? He is. How? Well, he has mercy. We're actually in this thing. He's just. This is part of God is love. We see this over and over again, that there's other, all these aspects of God do reflect his love. He's gracious. Does he have to be gracious? No. Does he have to be merciful? No. So, he certainly is love, but he's also just. You know, this is, again, this is, these are things that unbelievers use to try to trip up somebody who's trying to share the gospel with them, or they just trying to trip you up as a believer. Well, if you're God's love, how can you allow that hurricane to happen? How do you allow that tornado to happen? Why are we have inflation? Whatever. I mean, pick a subject, right? Maybe because God is just. <laughs> what do you mean? Everyone's a sinner. You think that those people that got struck by the hurricane didn't deserve that? They didn't deserve some of God's wrath? Of course they did. So do we. So do we. It's only his mercy and his grace that we don't feel it. Don't forget. How you share the gospel with an unbeliever is not by convincing them that the Bible is correct. It's not what the Bible teaches us. It teaches us by sharing the gospel. By sharing the gospel. Does it sound silly to share the gospel? The Bible says it does. In fact, the Bible says that God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to share his word. The foolishness of preaching. We don't think about that part too often, do we? But that's the reality. You will never convince somebody logically to be saved. You can't. 
What is required? No, if you have the best, like, oh, I'll tell you what, I've been working on this presentation, or I read this guy's book, or I watched this video with this guy, and he had this approach to people. You cannot get around it. it like, it's foolproof. It's going to work. No matter who you talk to, they are going to feel convicted and get saved. Is that, is that ever possible? Is that possible that somebody could come up with something like that? It's not possible. Why? You're forgetting who changes the heart. The Holy Spirit has to change the heart of stone into the heart of flesh. The scriptures talk specifically about this. Can someone who is dead, who has a heart of stone already, revive themselves, make their heart alive? Can someone who's dead and their heart is stone, that, by the way, is a metaphor, their heart is stone. He's like, that guy's heart is a stone. It's flesh. It's breathing. It's pumping. Okay, it's a metaphor. Whose heart is stone, can they revive themselves, turn it into flesh, so that they feel convicted and they believe in Jesus Christ. No. They can't. Can a dead person... That's the, script, that's the language the Scripture uses. Can a dead person revive themselves? No. Could Lazarus revive himself? No. It took God. Jesus Christ revived Lazarus. And by the way, did Jesus Christ directly do it? question there. That's a whole message. I'm not going to go into it today, but you can think about that little noodle cooker there. Hmm. Did Christ do all his miracles in his own power? Hmm. Hmm. That's a good question. If he did, why did he always pray to the Father before the miracle? Hmm. Interesting. Now, Who's the executive branch of God? The Son. The Son. He's the one who created the earth, the scriptures tell us, and he's the one that will judge the earth. He does that. Hmm. It's a noodle cooker for you. I'm not going to answer that one today. But God was the one that raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus did not raise himself. No one has ever raised themselves from the dead. Jesus Christ was raised by the Father. Father. Who of the sinners can save themselves? Can you save a sinner? You can't. Now this is the encouraging thing and the heartbreaking thing. Right? No matter how much you preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to an unbeliever, you cannot get them to be saved. You can't do it. Why? The Holy Spirit has to do it, not you. And that's the encouraging thing. Because no matter how badly you do in sharing the gospel, the Holy Spirit can change their heart and they will get saved. So it's discouraging in some ways, but it's encouraging in others. In the end, we have to trust God. He has chosen who would be called his own. What we don't know is, what is he going to use for his spirit to change that person's heart? Is it going to be he's waiting for you to share the gospel with them? Might be. The scriptures tell us very specifically. He doesn't just save people out of thin air. 
they have to hear the gospel. Hmm. In other words, it's not like, okay, well, these people are all the elect. These are all the ones that Christ was given by the Father. These are the ones the Father picked to be saved. So when they're born, they're saved. That's not what the scriptures say. There is a moment that the heart of stone is turned into the heart of flesh. It makes no sense whatsoever to say that everyone is saved from birth because then there would be no heart of stone turned into a heart of flesh. Wouldn't happen. There would be no moment of repentance. There would be no moment of belief. All these examples in the scripture of the New Testament of people being saved would not match that. Where someone hears the gospel and then becomes saved. If they were saved from birth, that wouldn't be that way, would it? That doesn't mean they weren't still chosen from birth. They were. They were. But there's still that moment, that point of salvation. Okay. God's judgment on sin, which is the direct violation of his nature and laws, is terrible in its severity. Now, I think we know this. It's pretty clear. His judgment on sin is what? Is that on the bottom there? Yeah. His judgment on sin is what? Eternal Damnation, right? What would you say? Punishment, yep. So what is God's judgment on sin? It is going to hell, the lake of fire for eternity. Now, that's justice. Why? Because God says it is. Yeah, but why couldn't he just make those people disappear? Like, why can't they just cease to exist. Their souls cease to exist. That's not just. Who are you to say? I'm not. I'm not the one that says it. God does. His plan. If he is righteous and his justice is righteous, then his plan that anyone that's saved, not saved will spend the eternity in torment and in fire is just. Can we agree on that? I mean, regardless of what we think, fair or not fair, if God says it's true, then it's true. If God says it's just, then it's just. We could be uncomfortable with that. I mean, honestly, we are uncomfortable with that, right? Because what you hate to think about is the people that you know who aren't saved. It does. Shows the, thank you, Paul. It shows the seriousness of sin. That's what Paul just said. It shows the seriousness of sin. It's very serious. It's, that's why the punishment is so severe. It's terrible severity. So how many sins can you commit before you go to hell? Well, turn to, I'm just kidding, there is nothing in the Bible that says, except for the fact that it's one sin. One sin. All it takes. What about more sins? What if you do more sins? You go to more hells? No. Same hell. Same hell. But praise God, he has given us a way that we can be redeemed. Not through our own power, but through his power, the blood of Jesus Christ, sacrificed on the cross, can save us from, from that eternal torment. From the severity of the punishment for God's justice. Do we deserve it? Nope. No. Nobody that's a Christian, nobody that's saved, deserves salvation. I mean, 
you've probably known some pretty good people in life, right? Sometimes you even know somebody that, you know, that person was a saint. You say something like that, or somebody will say something like that. I've heard that many times. You know, that person was a saint. They didn't seem like they did anything wrong. I mean, all they did was care about other people. All they did was do things for other people. Have you ever heard that before? I've definitely heard that before. The reality is, is that no, they're not. They're a sinner. They sin too. Now, they might be more sanctified than you, but they still sin. They still sin. I know it's hard to believe. Paul sinned, was it, 88? What is it? No, 92. What was the year? No. Paul sinned this week. How? Well, well, according to Kathy, no, I don't, I don't know how Paul sinned. But he did. Why? Because he's a sinner. This is the way it is. I mean, we, we, we often beat ourselves up and we think, you know, I'm, what's wrong with me? I mean, everybody else, you know, these guys, these guys are good. They're all the time. They look like they're doing their life's right and everything's going good. And No, they're sinning too. And they're struggling just like you are. They're having a hard time with things just like you are. They wish they wouldn't do what they do over and over again like you do. They wish that they actually would be able to do what things that they know they should do, but they're not doing just like you do. It's the same. It's the same. That should be reassuring to you, but it shouldn't be so reassuring that you say, well, you know what, I can just sin because everybody's sinning. I mean, when I get along. No, 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 no. It should be so you don't feel guilty. You don't feel, over, you don't feel like overpowered by the guilt of sinning so that you become basically stuck, right, ineffective, because you can't move forward because you're so overwhelmed by the sin. That's not what should happen. God will enact his justice on the lost, on the, un, on the unbeliever. On the believer, your sins have been paid for. Now try to act like a child of God, because that's who you're supposed to be. You're supposed to be acting like a child of God. And how do we know? Well, how, well, how's that work? How are we supposed to be? Jesus Christ, number one example. How did he act? Well, yeah, but you know, he never had to deal with what happens if the gas run, car runs out of gas or something. Oh, no, he didn't have to deal with that. But that, what's that got to do with it? The law tells you how to behave. It's pretty simple. Now, if you say, well, I don't know if I understand all the commandments. Okay. I think they're straightforward. However, there are plenty of resources that we could give you that give a broader explanation to the commandments that actually explain what is incorporated into those commandments. Because loving your neighbor as yourself is very easy to say. It was a summation of Christ, right? Certainly. But how does that apply when they keep knocking your mailbox over? Well, Luke 6 you would allow them to knock your mailbox over again. Hmm? Well, we don't like that very much. But read Luke 6 and see how it is to interact with a neighbor. If you want to know what it's like. That was a bit of a rabbit trail. So let's get back to this. God's character is the standard of righteousness by which the laws of men are judged. His law, which is his very nature, never changes. By that righteous, unchanging nature of his law, it is just. Now, this kind of is a good summary for everything that I already said, which kind of means I stole my own thunder. So, at any rate, that's pretty normal. So, notice just what it says there. God's character is the standard of righteousness by which the laws of men are judged. So, that's it. It's his character. Then his law which is 
his very nature never changes. We just were talking about that. And by that righteous, unchanging nature of his law, it is just. It, it's kind of like, I, I mean, I, I don't know if I'm trying to describe this this morning, and I hope that you're getting this idea that because of the fact that God is righteous, his judgment is automatically just. There's no flaw in him. So there's nothing that God can judge and give, put justice to that is wrong. If God brings his wrath on somebody, it's right. If God causes somebody to die, or allows somebody, or causes, either way, somebody to die, it's right. If God causes the bad guy to prosper, it's right. Why? It's his will. Now, what's that have to do with his justice? That part doesn't. But they will receive his justice. We have to remember that God doesn't give us justice on earth. He gives justice for eternity. He doesn't promise that you're going to live a great life and everything's going to go good for you on earth. He promises that in eternity. In fact, what he does promise is, is that you're going to be persecuted for his namesake. That's what he promises. So I'm sorry, but Joel's wrong. Not the book of Joel. Joel Osteen. It's prosperity gospel. That part he's wrong about. God does not want you to be happy, wealthy, and wise. That's man wanting it. It's not what God says. And good guys don't always win and bad guys don't always lose. Bad guys win. Sometimes. We don't like it, but they do. Sometimes they prosper. True? Yeah. That's not God's judgment. His judgment is righteous. The sinner will receive justice for their sin. They will not be rewarded for their sin. So if you see them having temporary success or what looks good to us, understand that that is temporary. It is temporary. It is not the way that it's going to be. And frankly, what they have on this small vapor of time of life on earth is inconsequential to eternity. Pardon me? What shall, that's right. Think about that. Your, your time on earth is so short. The Bible calls it it's like a vapor. You know what a vapor? Like, you see it when it's cold, like, right? But you also see it like if you're, if you're running the tea kettle or you're boiling something, right? And you see the water vapor come up and it's gone, right? It's just not there. It disappears. That is quick. Right, you, you see that steam coming out, and it's gone, like, really quick. That's what your life is like. It's like a vapor. Do you think if God does not judge somebody in that vapor time frame, that he's not capable of judging them when the vapor's done? He's capable, and he will, his word tells us. God judges sin because he hates sin. Sin is an act of treason and rebellion against the creator of the universe. So we are the creation. He is the creator. Think of it like a, uh, well, the Bible uses the pot and the potter, right? The person who creates a vessel. And then can the vessel tell the potter, you didn't do me right, you need to change this, you need to add a handle, you need to, you know, whatever, glaze me, whatever it is, right? No. No, the creation cannot tell the creator what to do. 
And if the creation somehow disobeys the Creator, then the creation gets squashed. That's where the analogy ends. Sin is an act of treason and rebellion against God. So he says, this is how you're to act. His nature, this is how you're to act. You disobey him, you are disobeying the creator of the universe. Doesn't get bigger than that. Nothing even close to that. It's sin against God. And we, you know, Again, it's culture, and even in our own minds, we make God a lot smaller than he is. But remember that Jesus Christ is God. He's one of the three parts of the Trinity. But God the Father is also God. God the Spirit is also God. You can't limit God to Jesus Christ's body. Are you with me on this? That's not only God. He's much bigger than that. Way beyond our existence in the universe. We are nothing compared to God. So who are we to thumb our nose at God and disobey him? God does not have to account for his actions to any of his creatures. Again, we're kind of saying it again and again here. God does not have to tell you why he did what he did. He doesn't have to prove to you that he was righteous to do what he did. He doesn't have to prove to any of his creation why he's just in what he does. Why? He's the creator. He's the creator. God will not change his laws, his nature, or his promises, regardless of man's desires or pleas. He will judge the sinful. I have a whole bunch of verses. We don't have time to read today, so we'll start next week with finishing this. We'll read this point again, and then we'll go into the verses. But the point is, is that he doesn't change his laws. He doesn't change his nature. He is immutable. Immutable is unchanging. So he's not going to change his mind. He's not going to change his mind. Did God plan to wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah? He did. He did. Were Abraham's pleas, did that change his mind about Sodom and Gomorrah? No. It didn't. You think God didn't know how many righteous there were? He knew. He knew. Could, could Noah have changed God's mind about the flood? No. Do you think that Noah maybe could have, during all, that, all those years that he was building the ark, prayed for God to be merciful and not destroy the earth? Very possible that he did. Wouldn't you think that he would have? That he would pray for God's mercy? Probably he did. But God's plan was to judge the unrighteous in a physical way that time. And he did. And he did. We see examples of God doing this over and over and over in Scripture. It does not matter how bad man pleads for it. He's not going to change his nature. He's not going to suddenly call sin righteousness. He's not going to suddenly say, well, okay, maybe we don't have to judge everybody who sins so harshly and send some to hell and some will just get a free pass into heaven. He doesn't change. It's not the way it is. He's laid out what the plan is. There's only one sacrifice 
for sin. Jesus Christ. That's it. There are not many ways to the mountain. There are not many ways to heaven. This is modern ridiculousness. There are not many ways. You're going to say, well, this person is a Buddhist, and if they do this, then they can get to heaven. And this person is a Muslim, and if they do this, they can get to heaven. And this person is whatever, any religion you pick. If they just are true to their religion, then they can get to heaven. That's not what the Bible says. And if it's God's word, then he is the authority on who gets to heaven. There are basic flaws in these other religions because they describe things that make God's nature contradictory. It's only the scriptures and this understanding of who God is that you see all of the gears mesh. All of the gears work. God is truly who he says he is, and these things all make sense. As soon as you take away that God doesn't, is not just, he doesn't judge people for their sins, it, it all gear, gums up, it breaks. The gears don't work. He's not God. He must be just. Or he's not God. He must judge those who disobey him. Or he's not God. Next week, we will start by going through the scriptures that all about this section, about how God and his judgment is just. And then we'll move on from there, and we're actually getting someplace now where we move into paragraph 2. Let's close in a word of prayer.